0: Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. This is episode 72. It's a monthly show, which means that we've been on the air for six years so far. Dear listener, thank you for your interest and your support. It's been an interesting year so far. To help make sense of it all, I spoke recently with a good friend of the show, a very good friend of mine, Sanho Tree.
1: Hi, Doug. I'm Sanho Tree. Uh, I work on drug policy reform, although these days I'm doing a lot of work on Ukraine because I'm a former military and diplomatic historian. Uh, but, uh, Yeah, I've been working on drug policy for a number of years now, shall we say, (laughs) Um, and this is an interesting time to be alive. I'm uh, glad I'm here for it.
0: (laughs) We're going to go international first. What's happening in Colombia?
1: So President Petro was just inaugurated last week, um, and he has promised a, uh, a complete change of direction on the drug war and on a host of all these other issues on the environment, on inequality, on indigenous rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. Uh, This is the first progressive president Colombia has ever had in its modern history. So this is a huge deal, especially when they've had like, you know, several conservative, uh, very right wing presidents uh, in a row. Um, And so uh, what he is and and Colombia is the number one uh, recipient of counter narcotics assistance uh, by the U.S. And so when they say they've had enough, Washington has to listen. At least to some degree, because it's like pushing a string. You can, uh, you know, and previous Colombian governments have always been happy to take Ringo money to do do their bidding. Uh, but now not so much not so much
0: the the ceasefire, the Colombian Civil War, how long ago did this did the latest ceasefire happen? and did it actually ever take hold?
1: Yeah, so this is the thing. Colombia has had many civil wars uh, in the past century. Uh, there was even a previous one in the 1950s, uh, 40s, 50s, called La Violencia, which is even more violent. Um, they just call it the violence. But this particular civil war started in the mid-60s it's when Lyndon Johnson sat in the White House. And uh, the main guerrilla army, the FARC, uh, F-A-R-C, negotiated a ceasefire with the previous government. Uh, this is two presidents ago now, at, which took place in 2016. That president was somewhat moderate and agreed to various concessions, you know, re entry for the guerrillas, helping peasant farmers, etc. But the right wing, far right wing president who came after him, President Duque, said, No, none of that. He wants to keep punishing the guerrillas as much as possible, even though after a half century they finally laid down their weapons. He said, No, we haven't punished them enough. Uh, it's very Trumpian, just like very visceral arguments, right? And so the Many of the, the key parts of the peace agreement never took place. And as a result, some of the guerrillas went back uh, to taking taking up arms uh, and drug trafficking. Some of them are purely involved in drug trafficking and not so much in the, in the guerrilla war anymore. Uh, there's still another guerrilla army that hasn't uh, gotten a peace deal yet. So President Petro has offered to negotiate uh, and to meet with these people and see what he can do to, to get them to lay down arms. President Petro was a member of the M-19 uh, guerrilla movement back in the 70s and 80s, and he was amnestied. Uh, he never fired a shot in anger. Uh, he was more of the ideological wing of, the, of, the, of that movement, but he was uh, received the full amnesty. And in fact, I met him first about 20 years ago in Bogota when he was a newly em- elected member of the lower house of deputies. And back then, I remember we talked about ending the drug war someday. Well, that someday is now he is president and he has definitely come out solidly against the drug war. Uh, So it's going to be a very interesting uh, few months as uh, Washington figures out how to react to all of this.
0: Any indications how Washington might uh, might be reacting to this? I mean, God knows there's nothing else going on in the world to occupy their attention.
1: So Ted Cruz and other Republican gas bags are are trying to, you know, um, on this as much as possible. Uh, He gave a fiery speech about how the Marxists are taking over South America. The pink wave uh, in various countries and in Chile and, uh, you know, uh, in in Bolivia and all these other countries. And soon Brazil, uh, Lula, uh, the, the populist progressive president, will be back in power, it looks like. So the Republicans are kind of freaking out about this. And they're trying to scrape up as many Cold War boogeymen as possible to try to scare people. But this is um, not your parents' left-wing, you know, South American uh, governments anymore. These are a bit more, it's a different generation. Um, They're more pragmatic in many ways. Uh, They're less bombastic. um, And they're more about getting things done, uh, at least in, in, in most of these countries. So it'll be interesting. And Washington doesn't really know what to do about this. Latin American policy has kind of been a backwater, well, historically, but especially under the Trump years, And Congress really didn't deal with it much because there was so much else going on during those (laughs) those calamitous years that uh, the permanent bureaucracy kind of took over for a while. And now there is a great need for adult supervision uh, because we're facing a new reality in, in Latin America.
0: On the one hand, I, I, I imagine some people might think that with a conflict going on, it would make it harder for people to operate in the illegal market to, uh, to, to cultivate, to, to traffic, and yet the reality is a little different, isn't it?
1: Yeah. In fact, it's, it's rather counterintuitive. Uh, conflict and drugs have always gone together. That's why uh, a lot of the CIA's most famous drug scandals have uh, involved you know, uh, insurgencies or counterinsurgencies. Because when there is all kinds of of mayhem and violence and disorder, those are some of the best circumstances under which to carry out illegal activities. Uh, When you have contested terrain um, and lack of state presence, it's a good opportunity to do illegal things if that's what you're into. Um, So Colombia, again, is bigger than Texas and California combined. The government never had enough troops to fully occupy their own country. Um, and uh, as a result, you had a lot of these abandoned uh, or, or ungoverned spaces in the rural areas where guerrillas, where right wing paramilitary death squads and drug traffickers um, and, and uh, you know, wildcat miners, uh, loggers, uh, you know, illegal cattle ranchers could just invade territories, very often indigenous territories, and do whatever they wished. And they became very powerful and were able to bribe whatever local government there, there might be in the area. And so the challenge is to establish uh, state authority over these areas and to have some capacity to to implement rule of law. That figures into drug ending the drug war. If you if your goal is to regulate uh, and and legalize to some degree different parts of of the drug economy, then it's important to have rule of law so that your regulators don't come back dead. Right. This is why uh, it was folly for. Uh, certain NGOs to uh, talk about, you know, taxing and regulating Afghan opium back uh, during the, the first Bush, administ- uh, rather the first of George W. Bush's administrations uh, during the Af- beginning of the Afghan war, people said, oh, this that's how we should solve the problem. Uh, just turn the Afghan opium into uh, uh, prescription opiates. But again, if you don't have control of the countryside and your regulators come back headless, then there's nothing to stop farmers from growing the the amount of opium for the legal regulated market and then to grow even more for the unregulated uh, underground economy, double dipping, right? So if you really do want a regulatory system to to survive, then you need rule of law. And we see this, for instance, in Bolivia, which moved uh, many years ago now to uh, regulate traditional coca chewing um, for for traditional purposes, uh, and, and that could also include tea, um, coca candy, coca you know products, but not cocaine. But so coca in its natural form, they were able to uh, withdraw from the international conventions and, and re-exceed with a with a, with a, you know special provision for themselves, saying this is part of our patrimony. We have used the coca leaf for thousands of years, and we intend to keep using it, regardless of your stupid drug war. Um, but we're going to regulate it. And so they were able to get their own citizens to comply with regulation uh, and to voluntarily support regulation because it helped everyone in the long run so that no one overproduced, no one, you know, uh, sold to the, uh, or very few did. Uh, And they would actually self-police because it was a good deal for them. They were able to finally make a, a reasonable living, not a great living, but a reasonable living growing coca leaf for traditional use.
0: The uh, the city of New York, of course, recently opened two supervised consumption sites, overdose prevention centers, community health engagement locations. I don't give a whatever what you want to call them, what your favorite euphemism is. The uh, the state of Rhode Island passed a uh, passed a bill to allow establishment of supervised consumption sites, overdose prevention centers. They have yet to do so, but they are moving closer. And in California. There is legislation SB 57 recently passed both sides of the California legislature, the assembly, the Senate agreed to legis- to the assembly's amendments. That bill is now on the desk of Gavin Newsom awaiting his signature. Safe consumption sites. What do you think?
1: It's a no brainer, um, especially if you believe, uh, you know, these these uh, Republicans and their rhetoric about how sacred life is. Um, The number one uh, rule should be life matters uh, in this case. And and you can't help people uh, get into recovery later if they so choose, if they've overdosed. That's just the (laughs) the simple fact of it. And so uh, it's time to call them out. If you really do believe in life, then safe consumption sites or or supervised consumption centers uh, are the way to go. There are hundreds of them around the world and no one has ever overdosed uh, or no one's ever died in a safe consumption site. Right, um, so that's a hell of a track record, considering how many there are and how many decades they've been operating around the world.
0: And in fact, now have you have you managed to uh, visit any of these sites? There's uh, there's Insight, of course, the mo- one of the most famous, the sort of a medical model, but um, been going on yeah. in um, Vancouver for the last couple of decades. Brilliant place.
1: Yeah, I, actually, I lobbied to set up Insight uh, some 20 years ago in Vancouver. It's a great model. Um, there's an even older one in in Sydney, uh, in Australia, uh, near Kings Cross, and I visited that. Uh, my good friend uh, Alex Wodak took me there uh, back in 2016, and it, it was quite striking. Um, they've had it for for you know many many years now. Again, no one has uh, died from an overdose in, in this site. Uh, they have physicians or nurses on premises uh, during during operating hours, and they, he showed me a map. Uh, the overdoses that occurred around King's Cross, which used to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, open air drug use, uh, sex workers, etc. And the and the, the heat map of that neighborhood was just covered in red dots with people who had overdosed in that neighborhood. And then when they opened those, opened up the, the, the supervised consumption site, uh, no more. It, 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 the overdoses stopped. I mean, it was just night and day. Uh, So the the results are spectacular. Nothing short of spectacular. Especially now with fentanyl, uh, where everyone is playing Russian roulette on the streets. Uh, This is more critical than ever.
0: This is my conversation with Sanho Tree, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and director of the IPS Drug Policy Project. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. As I mentioned at the top of the show, International Overdose Awareness Day is August 31st. I spoke about that recently with Haven Wheelock. She's the Drug Users Health Services Program Supervisor for Outside In, a Portland, Oregon nonprofit.
2: I'm Haven Wheelock. I run the Drug Users Health Services Program at Outside In in Portland, Oregon. So, Overdose Awareness Day has been around for a long time. Um, In the United States, over 100,000 people died last year from Um, overdoses, and it is a crisis and I get a little teary when I talk about it, but um, so every year outside in for the last 10 years has hosted a memorial to honor the lives of people we have lost to overdose and to commit to fighting this overdose crisis. So um, we will be, ho- this year we will be hosting um, a memorial service and reading of names of folks who we've lost to overdose on the 31st at 6 p.m. in shamansky Park, which is in the Southwest Park blocks between Maine and Salmon. Um, and we're just going to come together and remember folks and show up and give out some naloxone and, you know, really be present to try and give people, there's so much stigma associated with death by overdose. And while many of us have been affected by these losses, it really feels important to me to give us a space to grieve collectively for these losses. So we'll be in the park, safely, distance, hugging on each other and really remembering those people who, so often don't get remembered um, because of their addiction. And yeah, I'm hoping it's gonna be a beautiful event. And I, it's the first time we've done a like more formal memorial since the pandemic started. We've done like art installations the last two years because of COVID precaution. Um, so we're excited this year to be able to actually have a time-based event where we can be together um, and remember folks that deserve our remembering. Outside In is an organization that's been in our community for over 50 years. Um, We we actually offer a pretty broad range of services. We do um, services, drop-in space, housing, case management for homeless youth, so people 25 and under. Um, And that's kind of where we started. However, we also have a um, primary care clinic for anyone who is low income um so if anyone needs any kind of primary care and that's open to anyone regardless of age um, i think people often think of outside in as a youth focused organization but all of our healthcare services are all ages um so if you need a doc you should come see ours because they're kind of awesome um in addition to that we actually run the third oldest legal syringe access program in the country. Um, and that's the part that I run. So I run all of our stuff that is associated with drug use. So overdose prevention work, all of our syringe access, harm reduction work, um, HIV, hepatitis C screening, testing. Um, it's a pretty lovely place to be a part of.
0: That was Haven Wheelock, Drug Users Health Services Program Supervisor at Outside Inn in Portland, Oregon. Full disclosure, I'm a supporter of Outside In and a monthly donor. They provide vital services and do tremendous work. Find out more at OutsideIn.org. Welcome back. Now let's hear more from my conversation with Sanho Tree, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and director of the IPS Drug Policy Project. I'm trying to think of what else to talk about, but it's not like there's anything else in the whole world going on right now. Hmm. You know, uh,
1: someday we should do an episode on Taiwan and Ukraine, if your listeners are interested in that. But today's big story is Trump and those documents. And it actually intersects with my previous career. People have highlighted the nuclear side of the documents. And yes, that's very problematic for Donald Trump to be uh, stealing nuclear documents But the other one is signals intelligence that came out overnight, and that is much, much bigger. There was was a former World War II historian. The, The biggest secret during World War II for the United States was not the atomic bomb. It was code breaking, signals intelligence. The U.S. had not only broken the German, Japanese and Italian codes, but almost all the Allied codes. And so they were able to read President Truman every morning. Um, got a digest called the Magic Diplomatic Summaries of all the juiciest cable traffic, top secret, from most governments around the world. So he knew there were negotiating positions, what to do to set up the UN, what they were balking about, how far he could push people. This has gone on ever since World War II. That's what National Security Agency does. And They don't talk about it. They used to stand for never say anything or no such agency because it signals intelligence is the fight club of the intelligence world. you don't talk about it, because the moment you do, the people you're eavesdropping on will change their systems or or shut up or or plant false information on on that system.
0: And then yesterday, one of the uh, and then yesterday, someone is reported to have tried shooting at a uh, Cincinnati field office of the FBI.
1: Uh, and, and, And that same person was on Capitol Hill, January 6th or 5th. He was one of the Capitol riot, one of those people that that Trump, you know, incited the violence back then and incited the violence again yesterday. And now he's dead, both um, because Trump lies. (laughs) He gets himself into these jams and he just lies. Unfortunately, people will believe him and die for those lies. Donald Trump is the most dangerous stochastic terrorist this country has ever produced. Uh, Stochastic terrorism is, you know, when you incite someone else to commit terror uh, or or violence, and even Joe McCarthy couldn't get people to murder each other over this, uh, although some may have tried. But we were generally a bit more civil back then. (laughs) Now we have social media that makes these lies travel, you know, at the speed of light, uh, and people are acting out um, in a way that they couldn't before in, in any kind of organized fashion. You know, several weeks to get your your newsletter from uh the 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 you know nut jobs the the john birchers and stuff uh now this stuff circulates uh instantaneously
0: it says outside of the remit of an of a show that talks about drugs and drug culture having said that <laughs> um it's uh it, you know it's it's hard to kind of ignore what's going out what's going on out there in the world and uh to talk about young people being all depressed after the last couple of years of lockdown. And I was like, gee, I wonder why. I mean, they've just seen people in authority who are more than happy to sacrifice their grandparents just so some lazy jerk can go out for brunch or happy hour.
1: I think, you know, our 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 main disease is modernity and we don't recognize it as such. We've destroyed traditional life ways that gave our, our previous generations some sort of stability over over many generations And we've created a new world of concrete, steel, petroleum, silicon that makes no sense, um, that we don't know is sustainable beyond another generation. And I wonder if our level of drug use, desperation, despair, suicide, uh, is a rational response to a world gone mad, basically.
0: You know, I think if you tried telling people that you'd have a couple of drug legalizing lefties talking about traditional values and, you know, the, uh, the need to return to some of these very basic kinds of civility that I, I yeah, but that's the reality.
1: You know, it was the elders the, of the Algonquin Federation, from whom we stole our idea of a constitution, uh, who came up with the expression, how will the decisions we make today affect the seventh generation down the line? That's really important because we're not allowed to think even one generation down the line. If you think about planning anything, you know, even five years in the future, Fox News will call you a socialist. Uh, And so no one is planning for the future. Not our leaders, because they think in terms of two, four, six year election cycles. Corporations think in terms of quarterly numbers. And there's no one to think about the next generation, much less the current generation. Uh, (laughs) The future is we leave it up to market forces. And these corporations don't care about your children uh, or the world, your, your great-great-great-grandchildren might inherit someday. They only care about maximizing profits today. That's that's their mission statement. That's what they do. So whose job is it to look about, look forward to, to look, look out for the future?
0: And it does help if you view people as human beings deserving of respect and dignity.
1: And what a lot of the and it helps uh, psychedelics help a lot of people understand this um, in a very organic way.
0: And we are coming closer to legalizing uh, psychedelic. We got actually legal psychedelic therapy that's going to be coming on board here in Oregon in a very short time. I, the state in which I currently live, the uh, state of California, is edging somewhat closer to it. And um, now
1: the decrim of psychedelics as well. Yeah. Wow. Now, have,
0: have they started have they started looking at psychedelic therapy or is it uh, where are you No,
1: it's just the voter initiative last year uh, or it the year before now? I am getting all mixed up with my <laughs> lockdown timelines. <laughs> but uh, yes, the voters overwhelmingly approved, uh, making it the lowest level of law enforcement priority. Uh, we don't have regulated markets or anything like that in D.C., uh, but the police have been clearly told to make this your lowest priority, you know, hands off.
0: Which of course, is probably as far as you'll be able to get with Congress having the authority to. now. OK, so just for the benefit of listeners, how much control does Congress have over the actual laws that D.C. is allowed to adopt?
1: Uh, a, a fair amount, actually. So it's the budget that where they, they can interfere. And Republicans have always used D.C. as their punching bag. Bob Barr used to do this with medical marijuana, you know, 20-some years ago in D.C. Uh, Andy Harris, the Republican from Eastern Maryland, is the most recent one to mess with us. So D.C. voted to overwhelmingly legalize marijuana in 2014. Uh, But he introduced a rider in the federal budget when the Republicans controlled Congress to uh, prevent D.C. from spending even a single penny on taxing and regulating marijuana which means we live in this limbo of it's legal. You can own it, possess it, give it away. uh, You can use it, you can grow it, but you can't sell it in any kind of regulated fashion. And so the D.C. City Council uh, intervened uh, this past month and said, okay, we have medical marijuana in D.C., and because Congress won't let us have uh, legal tax and regulated recreational markets, we're going to pass emergency legislation to allow anyone over the age of 21 in DC to self-certify that they need "quote unquote" medical marijuana, and get access to a m- marijuana card for free, and that would allow them to access the the limited number of legal dispensaries there are in DC, which I think is a pretty good deal. It's effectively making medical dispensaries recreational adult use uh, dispensaries.
0: Well, it's certainly a step here in Oregon, of course, when we initially um, passed the medical uh, the medical marijuana legislation, the initiative, the, um, it forbade any kind of commerce. The, uh, the caregivers were not even allowed to be reimbursed for their, uh, for the, for the expenses of buying, you know, dirt or paying for lights, let alone their, uh, their time. So, um, and of course we, it took a while, but we managed to change that. Now you'd have to get Congress to make that change though.
1: You know, the simplest thing to do is just allow anyone, any adult to grow up the three plants, no questions asked, Period. Um, that'll take care of their needs for the year. <laughs> Most people, uh, plus a little extra, you know, it, it's in case the crop fails. Um, and you don't need to deal with a lot of this other stuff or a lot of collectives. If, if you're not good at growing, you can have a friend, does a friend do it. Uh, and set up your own little network that way.
0: That was my conversation with Sanho Tree, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies and director of the IPS Drug Policy Project. And that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I thank my guests, Sano Tree and Haven Wheelock. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for Community Radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's Audio Port Service. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or a direct download. Find links at the website, kboo.fm/slash free culture. Free Culture Radio is on Facebook at facebook.com/slash kboo free culture radio. Please give it a like. Theme music for Free Culture Radio was composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long.